Welcome to First Move from London. Fantastic to be back with you as we begin ringing out the old and ringing in the new. Investors had a challenging year. Consumers certainly did too. The big question for next year, will global inflation subdue? Mark Zandi may have a clue. Moody's Analytics Chief Economist joins later for his thoughts on the outlook for next year. And a new year brings fresh hopes for a more just and peaceful world too. Meditation expert and best-selling author Deepak Chopra has urgent advice to Russian President Putin and other world leaders. Nine rules they can utilise to help resolve conflicts. Deepak obviously says there's no time to waste, and we agree. My special interview with him coming right up. And from hopes for a more peaceful world to at least some green arrows unfurled. European stocks beginning the holiday-shortened trading week higher. As you can see there, U.S. futures a little unsettled. The Nasdaq a touch lower now, but hopes for a legendary Santa Claus rally this year spring eternal, with the Wall Street bulls hoping to break a three-week losing streak, in fact. U.S. sentiment getting a little bit of a boost, I think, from solid holiday spending numbers up by a stronger-than-expected 7.6%, thanks in large part to a reservation rush at restaurants. It's all about the services sector. Yes, that remains one of the most resilient segments of the the U.S. economy right now. Now news, too, that China is further lifting zero COVID policies, adding to the sentiment boost. Asian stocks all closing higher. Beijing announcing that it will drop quarantine requirements for all international passengers entering the country beginning on January the 8th. Other countries are reacting with, as I think you would expect, some caution so far. Japan and India are now imposing testing requirements on travellers entering from mainland China. That said, oil prices are reacting positively. Investors assuming, I think, that this will help support broader global growth and therefore energy demand along with it. Be careful, however, what you wish for. Higher Chinese crude consumption could further boost inflation in the new year, of course, if supplies tighten. And that is where we begin today's show in China where some families who've been separated for three long years are looking forward to reuniting in the new year. Selena Wang has all the details from Beijing. China is making a major move towards ending the country's nearly three years of isolation. China is dropping quarantine for all international arrivals from January 8th and promising to gradually restart outbound tourism for Chinese citizens. Inbound travelers still need to get a 48-hour negative COVID test before boarding, but they dropped all of the other cumbersome requirements. To understand why these changes are such a big deal, we have to look at what the reality has been in China during the pandemic. The country has been severely limiting who can go in and out of the country with strict border controls. Flights have been very limited and expensive. All arrivals had to go through quarantine in government facilities. I went through multiple quarantines myself, including 21 days earlier this year. And we're talking about harsh quarantines. No choice in where you get sent. No opening your door except for food pickups and COVID tests. All of that is now going away. This new change would effectively also end the ban on Chinese citizens from going overseas for non-essential reasons. But the timing is still unclear. Authorities have not said when they'll restart issuing tourist visas or allowing foreigners to apply for business, study or family reunion visas. But finally, people are seeing the light at the end of the tunnel. Online searches for popular international travel destinations on China's travel booking site Ctripped jumped 10 times within an hour of when this announcement was made. I've also spoken to a few Chinese citizens who've been stuck overseas for years. They are overjoyed and relieved that finally there's a way for them to see family. But there's also some bitterness over how long this has taken. They've already missed so many important moments, family deaths, births, reunions. 
But in response to this change, other countries are starting to issue restrictions on travelers from China. Japan announced travelers from the country will be tested for COVID upon arrival. Japan's prime minister also said the country will restrict plans to increase flights in and out of China. India announced similar COVID testing guidelines. Authorities in India said the guidelines are aimed at ensuring COVID does not spread as quickly as it has been in China. Selena Wang, CNN, Beijing. And to South Korea now, where the government says it will accelerate the launch of its military drone unit in response to actions by North Korea. Pyongyang flew five drones into South Korean airspace on Monday. One of them even flew over the capital, Seoul. And Paula Hancocks is there and has the latest. Just one day after North Korea sent drones over the border into South Korean airspace, South Korea's President Yoon Suk-yeol says that they are speeding up the launch of a drone unit. Now, the president said that this was already in the works. They had been planning this. But what had happened on Monday had shown that the military was not ready for this kind of threat. I think our people have just witnessed how dangerous it is to have North Korean policies solely relying on the North's goodwill and military agreements. So the South Korean military started tracking a drone at 10.25 in the morning on Monday. Now, according to the military, they say these drones were uh, less than two metres long and they tracked them for some five hours. So we're being told that five came across the border. One approached the capital, Seoul, and then four of the others uh, were flying around Gangwa Island, which is just off the west uh, coast of the peninsula. Now, South Korea's reaction was that they scrambled fighter jets and attack helicopters. In fact, one of those fighter jets did crash, but the defence ministry say there was no injury uh, to the crew itself. And also what they did uh, from the South Korean side is that they sent uh, reconnaissance assets, uh, aircraft, into North Korea as well. Some just along the inter-Korean border, but some went into North Korean airspace and filmed and photographed military installations. So uh, a tit-for-tat response to what North Korea had done as well. The Spokesperson saying it's a clear provocation and an invasion of our airspace by North Korea. Now, it is unusual for this to happen, but it's not unprecedented. The last time uh, that a drone was detected by the South Koreans was back in 2017, and that is when they discovered a crashed North Korean uh, drone. And at that uh, time, the military said that they believed it had been photographing uh, a a US-built missile defence system in the country. Also, a similar situation back in 2014, uh, when they also discovered uh, a crashed uh, drone from North Korea. Now, this has been a concern uh, from the South Korean side, but it is also coming at a time, an historic time, when North Korea has been continually firing missiles and launching missiles uh, throughout 2022. Never in its history have we seen what we have seen this year. And it also comes at a time when relations between the two Koreas are particularly bad. Paula Hancock's CNN Seoul. And turning to the war now in Ukraine, an ultimatum from Russia's foreign minister. Late Monday, Sergei Lavrov threatened Kyiv, saying Ukraine must accept Moscow's demands, which include giving up territory Russia now controls, or, he said, it will be decided on the battlefield. Lavrov's comments come just one day after Russian President Vladimir Putin said he was open to negotiations aimed at ending the war, 
on his terms. An advisor for Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky warned Monday that any peace talks coming from the Kremlin cannot be trusted. CNN's Claire Sebastian joins us now on this. Claire, I think uh, President Putin's made it very clear and, and will reiterate it there that any peace negotiations that he's foreseeing have to be on his and on Russia's terms. It's perhaps no surprise that it's being met with deep scepticism both in Ukraine and beyond. Yeah, I mean, he uses the word negotiation, Julia, but it's clear that he's not prepared to negotiate because they're not prepared to compromise on Russia's red lines. Again, as you say, we heard from the foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, in an interview with the Russian news agency TASS uh, on Monday, saying that the proposals by Moscow, which Ukraine needs to meet in order to end this, are the demilitarization and denazification, he says, of the whole of Ukraine and the elimination of security threats to Russia. And that includes, he says, those four illegally annexed territories, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson, which, of course, Russia doesn't even fully control. So Ukraine, on the other hand, wants to return to its 1991 borders, which include Crimea. Those are red lines on both sides. So it's really unclear at this point how they would come together. I think a key question is why would Vladimir Putin say that he wants talks if he doesn't really want to compromise? Perhaps to nudge Ukraine's allies in the West to, to sort of push Ukraine towards some kind of ground giving, some kind of compromise to try to end this. We know there are concerns in some quarters in the West about how long this is going to go on, how they will continue to arm Ukraine. So perhaps that what he's, that's what he's trying to do. But Ukraine, for its part, the foreign minister in an interview with the Associated Press saying that he wants peace talks in February, but only if Russia submits to a war crimes trial. So again, not much ground, not much, no, no, no real chinks of light in how that could actually work, Julian. I think your point is a, a very important one. And we were having the discussion a couple of weeks ago with Ian Bremmer of G Zero Media on the show and the, and the risk that perhaps Putin did step forward and say, OK, we're ready for some form of negotiations. And to your point, with the, the spillover effects of this war and the pressure that it's putting on countries all over the world, perhaps the pressure would then turn back on Ukraine to say, look, guys, you need to look for avenues perhaps of compromise here in order to be able to reach some form of resolution. Uh, the message, I think, was very clear when uh, Vladimir Zelensky was in the United States that, that any negotiations that take place will be determined and decided by Ukraine alone. And I think this is very important for Putin to understand at this moment, too. And yet we hear repeatedly, Julia, from both Putin and from his foreign minister this week and other Russian officials that they feel that they are fighting not just with Ukraine, but with the West as well. Now, this is something that I think plays well to audiences at home. It makes their military defeats look less humiliating, uh, but certainly that makes coming to the negotiating table more difficult because they continue to paint Ukraine as a sort of pawn of the West. And we, this kind of narrative flipping is really part of the playbook here. There was another comment from Sergei Lavrov in the interview that he said, as far as the length of the war is concerned, the ball is in the court of the regime and Washington, which stands behind it. He says they can at any moment stop the senseless resistance. Worth pointing out, of course, that all of this began because Russia invaded Ukraine, not because Ukraine resisted. Mm -hmm. And continuing to point out that they see this as a, a war against NATO and not just Ukraine itself war, in inverted commas. Um, Claire Sebastian, thank you so much for that. OK, meanwhile, blackouts are posing potentially deadly risks to Ukrainians who need power for life-saving medical devices. CNN's Will Ripley has been investigating. Christmas in Ukraine. Even the air raid sirens don't get a break. So when the lights go out, you use this? How, does, how do you turn on all like that? 12-year-old Sebastian has an arsenal of battery-powered lights, 
for the blackouts so he can play with his small army of toy tanks. Unfortunately, this doesn't run on batteries. Oh, you use it as a weight. <laughs> so that's how you stay strong. Sebastian has cystic fibrosis, a rare lung disorder. He needs a nebulizer to inhale medicine. It keeps him alive. He could die without inhalations. We can't miss them, his grandmother says. The first time we had a blackout, we took the machine and ran around looking for a generator. We found a shop where people charged their phones. We did it there. His grandmother shows us their small, portable nebulizer. When the lights go out, it gets the job done. Barely. That's machine number nine. This and is 1,319. Patients like him rely on help from Savoy Foundation, a nonprofit in Kyiv. They've helped more than 6,000 people with breathing problems. The situation for many, dire. What happens to people if the machine doesn't work? They die. They die. Yes. When there's no light for 20 or 30 hours, you have to go to the hospital, she says. We have patients who went from the apartment to the car for two days because they charged their device with a cigarette lighter. The sound of a blackout, even more terrifying than the sound of sirens for Olena Isaenko. The sound is like a flat line, she says. She's living with respiratory failure on the 15th floor. Blackouts mean no elevator, no way to get to the bomb shelter downstairs. When you can't cook, when there's no heat, you can live with that. But when you can't breathe, it's your life. Her portable respirator barely lasts two hours. It takes more than an hour to charge. Each blackout puts her life at risk. For so many, victims of Russia's constant, cruel bombardment, this is life, if you can call it that. Will Ripley, CNN, Kyiv, Ukraine. To the United States now, a new travel chaos is looming as thousands of flights are grounded. Most of the cancellations are Southwest Airlines flights, which have been struggling to cope with severe weather. Just listen to this PA announcement at an airport in Houston. Unfortunately, our next available seats for rebooking are on the 31st and beyond. Once again, our next available seats for rebooking customers at this time is at the 31st and beyond. And Gabe Cohen is at an airport in Baltimore for us. So Gabe, great to have you with us. I think um, for any traveller listening to that, I think your um, your stomach and your heart falls through the floor, quite frankly. Um, why have they been so disproportionately badly hit? Is it bad luck? Is it bad management or a combination of the two? Well, look, it depends who you ask, but that is the million-dollar question right now. Why is Southwest being hit so much harder than any other airline? They have largely blamed that huge winter storm, and yet they're the only U.S. airline that's still dealing with this massive fallout. Just take a look behind me at this board. Cancellation after cancellation. Southwest has already canceled more than 60% of today's flights. Most of that was done last night. 
and they've already gone ahead and canceled more than 60% of tomorrow's flights. The company telling me they're only going to fly about one-third of their scheduled flights in the coming days as they try to regroup. Take a look behind me at just how many stranded, lost pieces of luggage there are here in Baltimore, as there are right now in so many airports because of all these flight issues and cancellations. Again, uh, Southwest has said this is largely because of that winter weather, because of the storm, and yet their pilots union, the union that represents Southwest pilots, says this is not about a winter storm. This is about outdated processes and outdated IT. And CNN actually did obtain a video message, a transcript, of a video message sent out by the CEO of Southwest to the company on Christmas acknowledging that they were having issues and it was largely because of issues uh, where they needed to modernize their operations, where they were having those operational issues. Uh, so we're waiting to get more information from Southwest, but it's really little relief for the thousands, tens of thousands of passengers who are just left stranded right now. They can't reach customer service. Many are waiting hours and hours. And as you said right before uh, my hit here, many people can't get booked until close to New Year's Eve. So it is just a brutal situation. Messy, obviously, for the airline. The Department of Transportation says they're now going to examine if Southwest did everything they could. But it's far messier for these passengers just left stranded. Yeah, and if you manage to get home and uh, now you have to stay there until the 31st of December, um, I do hope you like your family to see the sort of funny side of um, what is utter chaos. Sympathies with everyone involved. Gabe, great to have you with us. Thank you. Gabe Cohen there. All right, straight ahead, we'll show you what communities in the UK are doing to keep their spirits up as temperatures drop. And later, questions are growing after the family of an Iranian football legend were taken off a plane heading out of Iran. Stay with us. That's coming up. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. investors heading back to work after the long Christmas weekend, or at least some of them are, and the holiday cheer in a lower gear. U.S. futures losing a lot of their gains from earlier on in the session. Word from China that it's relaxing international travel restrictions and further reopening its economy is, however, lending some support, particularly across Europe, where luxury names are higher on hopes for more robust sales, particularly from Chinese tourists. The bulls hoping to end the year on a high note, too, but it has been a challenging 12 months overall for stocks amid consecutive central bank rate hikes intended to bring down inflation. And that's going on globally, of course. It's worldwide. The S&P 500 coming into the trading week off 19% year to date. The Nasdaq, however, is the worst performing of the major indices, falling 33% in 2022 so far. The big questions, of course, for investors continue to include, can we avoid a US recession? Will inflation continue to ease and at what pace? And will the Federal Reserve make a market-friendly pivot? Well, Mark Zandi joins us now. He's the chief economist at Moody's Analytics, and he has his crystal ball with him as always, or at least I hope you do. Mark, welcome to the show and um, happy holidays as well. You're actually joining us for a reason because you are quite optimistic on the U.S. economic outlook for a number of reasons. But you do believe that a more material downturn can be avoided. Explain why, please. Well, Julie, I've got two or three crystal balls. I'm not sure which one uh, is uh, working today. <laughs> you can juggle today, them. But, uh, yeah, I've got a few of them. Uh, well, and it's all re- being optimistic is relative these days. I mean, obviously, when inflation is high and the Federal Reserve is raising interest rates aggressively, 
recession risks are you know uncomfortably high. So uh, the optimism has to be put into some context. But I do think the chance to get through this. I mean, key to all of the economy, the economic outlook is inflation and how fast that comes down uh, from the high levels right now. And at the at this point in time, we've been getting some pretty good news. I mean, oil prices are down, gas prices, which peaked at five dollars a gallon, are now down close to three dollars. Of course, the news out of China and and the fact that the COVID restrictions have, have been relaxed take a little bit of time before China gets up to full speed, given that a lot of folks are getting sick there. But, you know, that feels like that means supply chain should ease. Uh, rents are uh, have gone flat, which means housing costs should moderate. And I do think the job market is starting to weaken sufficiently to get wage growth down to a place where uh, the Fed won't be so concerned about inflation. So, it, you know, I guess bottom line, this feels like inflation is moving in the right direction fast enough to allow us to get through this without going into recession. Wow, there was a lot in there. Um, but actually what stood yeah. out to me is, I think, something that's changed quite dramatically. And it's a, it's a short-term thing. And the implications of it, I think we're all trying to analyse, is the, the potential growth kicker that China provides to the whole world if we do start to see reopening and more travelling. And it's, it's very difficult to calibrate, at least at this stage. Have you made any changes to your growth assessments in the United States simply because of what we're seeing there or, or hope to see, I think? Well, you know, I, no, not really, Julia. Mm. I mean, the U.S. economy is still a very domestically oriented economy. We obviously trade a lot with the rest of the world, and China is our biggest trading partner. So what happens to China matters. But in the grand scheme of things, it's really about the American consumer. That, that's what drives the train here. And you can kind of feel like for, for what's going on there by looking at Christmas sales. We got some data from uh, MasterCard on sales uh, during the Christmas season. And it was, you know, okay. You know, it wasn't gangbusters. It wasn't off to the races, uh, but it was, uh, you know, uh, indicative of a consumer kind of hanging tough, doing their part. And as long as that that remains the case, then the U.S. economy should be fine. And by the way, the American consumer is driving the entire global train. I mean, obviously China's been flat uh, on its back. And so it's been the American economy kind of driving the global economy going forward uh, at this, at least over the last uh, year or two. Yeah, I think this is something that is pivotal to understand at this moment is the stability and the relative wealth of household finances at this moment. We've seen stock markets fall, which obviously is important for a particular proportion of the population. The crypto market obviously has seen um, a, a shift to the downside as well. But I think what is interesting to me is the proportion of income that people are spending on debt repayments, on on interest repayments, and the proportion of people that we're now seeing turn to credit because the, the savings that they built up during the pandemic have run out. Can you give us a flavour of where we are today relative perhaps to pre-pandemic and, and history? Because it does feel like even into a slowdown, if we do see one, we're in a far stronger position position in terms of balance sheets, perhaps, than we have been in the past. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I, I fear we paint with too broad a brush. I mean, obviously, there's a, there's a big difference between different yeah. groups, right? I mean, low-income households, they're, they're, they're getting crushed uh, under the high inflation. They got to make some tough choices here. What do I do? Do I fill my gas tank? Do I put groceries on the table? Do I pay my rent? And how do I juggle all that? And they, they have drawn down the up during the pandemic. And so they are struggling. Middle-income households, that you know, that's where the you know the bulk of the and high-income households, that's where the bulk of the spending occurs in the economy. 
uh, pretty good shape. Uh, you know, you, you pointed out a lot of excess saving built up during the pandemic, uh, you know, it's sitting in people's checking accounts. They've been drawing that down to pay uh, for the higher cost of goods and services because of the higher inflation, but there's still a lot there. Uh, and leverage is low. Uh, you know, there has been a pickup in borrowing by low-income households to supplement uh, their purchasing power given the high inflation, but middle and high-income households have not borrowed. And they've done a pretty good job of locking in the previously low record interest rates, you know, through various mortgage refinancing waves. They've been able to lock those in. So they're insulated from the run-up in rates. So, you know, taking it in its totality, looking at the American consumer across the board, it feels pretty good. I mean, uh, enough to be optimistic, again, that we can navigate through this without going into recession. It's going to be a tough economy, but doesn't necessarily mean a recessionary one. So tie this all together for me then, Mark, very quickly, because you're saying, and this is again that the underlying optimism I think that, that we're reading is actually that the economy is in a far stronger position despite the headlines and the fears of, of what may happen and, and the recession risk. How likely is the Fed then to turn around and go, actually, based on the direction of travel for inflation and the work that we've done and the tightening that's still got to feed into the economy, um, time to perhaps slow it down, stop and assess where we are today? Yeah, well, I think we're close. I mean, the mm. Fed has laid out a script for us. They said, okay, we're going to raise rates uh, maybe another quarter percentage point when we meet in uh, in a few weeks, another quarter per percentage point in March. But my expectation that is by the spring, by March, April, May, the Fed will have enough evidence that uh, inflation is moderating uh, sufficiently and they can they can stop. They can pause, take a look around and then make a judgment at that sometime in the summer. And my sense is that that will be the end of the rate hikes. And if that's the case, then Julie, with a little bit of luck, hope, hopefully nothing else goes wrong, uh, we can get you can, we can have this conversation a year from now and uh, we'll feel like it was a tough year, but a year that did not include a recession. That's a date. We'll speak okay. again in a year. Very good. <laughs> we'll, we'll assess the quality of your crystal balls. Um, Marcus Andrew, Chief Economist at Moody Analytics. Happy New Year, sir. Thank you so much for joining Thank us. You. Welcome back to First Move. New York is waking up to sub-zero temperatures as a fierce winter storm continues to freeze large parts of the United States. More than 49 people have lost their lives nationwide, 27 of those in New York's Erie County. You can see here the conditions residents of the town of Buffalo continue to grapple with. They've received 100 inches or around 250 centimeters of snow since October. That is the snowiest start to the winter season ever. Polo Sandoval joins us now from Buffalo, New York. Polo, what are people saying to you there about their, their current conditions? And is everybody accounted for? The emergency services in, in these kind of conditions clearly are struggling too. Well, sadly, Julia, that death toll continues to climb. At last check, the total number of weather, of storm-related deaths just here in Erie County, New York alone is, was 27. And we're hearing that that number will likely continue to climb, possibly in the next hour. Uh, you have to remember that what we're seeing here, first responders just get, being able to, to, to get out in some cases and go door to door to some of these communities outside of the city of Buffalo that would particularly hit hard. And basically checking with residents and that is uh, those are the situations where they're uh, encountering people that sadly did not survive this storm uh, among the 27 dead about 
13 of those individuals were found on the street, some inside of cars that became stranded on Friday and Saturday when visibility was down to zero. Obviously, as you can see, the situation here in Buffalo right now, the situation has improved. Uh, and so those plow trucks are able to get out, clearing the streets, clearing the highways. But nonetheless, there is a driving ban that is still in place here in the city of Buffalo, which we have to remind our viewers was basically the ground zero of this massive storm that affected millions in many states. Uh, and so now is the point where they're moving forward on recovery. And many people here are hopeful that today will be a significant improvement in terms of uh, clearing out the roads and also getting more resources and assets into the area. You see Governor Kathy Hochul here in the state of New York basically uh, calling on resources and communities around Buffalo to be able to come in to assist with the plowing, to assist with those door-to-doors, and also with food. You see, there are many people here that have been hunkered down, us included, for now five days. And so there are very real concerns that in places like the warming shelters, uh, fire stations where some of these first responders have been working out of, that they are running out of food. So they're also turning to communities around Buffalo to try to send in some of that so they can keep going. Back to you. Yeah, makes perfect sense. We're just showing some video of the blizzard conditions. They're just um, astonishing. Thoughts with everybody there. Polo, thank you for being there to report on this uh, in Buffalo there. Thank you. Meanwhile, in Japan, heavy snow has claimed the lives of at least 17 people across the nation. That's according to the Fire and Disaster Management Agency. More than 90 others were injured over the past week. Japan's west coast has actually been hit particularly hard. One city reported more than 80 centimetres of snow or around 2.6 feet. Meanwhile, as temperatures fall in the United Kingdom and heating costs soar, some are turning to so-called warm spaces this winter. These are community centres that offer a warm place for people struggling to pay high energy bills. CNN's Anna Stewart has more. A hot drink, somewhere to sit and chat. The Oasis Centre in London is one of thousands of organisations across the UK now running warm spaces for those struggling to pay their energy bills. Being warm helps a person relax. The more relaxed they are, the the more logically they can think about all their other uh, worries and stresses. Uh, There's so many people, though, that are cold because given the choice between being warm and eating, you've got to eat and you've got to feed your family. What's happening this year is that more and more people are being caught into that trap. Some people call these warm banks, but you don't use that term. We think that's really important because it destigmatizes all of this. Once you're running a warm bank, if I come into your warm bank, I'm admitting that I can't heat my house. But if you're running the living room, as we call it, at the Oasis Center, well, actually you might be a millionaire. Charity National Energy Action predicts over 8 million UK households will be in fuel poverty by April. Almost double the number since last year, despite the government spending billions to subsidise rising energy bills. I've spent over £100 in a few weeks on gas alone. Mum of four, Charlotte Hilton, works at the centre, but also uses its services to help support her family. Do you think there'll come a point where you won't be able to meet all of your bills? Yeah. Yeah, there will be. It will become a point because everything's going up, but wages, benefits, all those things. Um, And it's not just affecting, obviously, lower class people. It's affecting everybody. 
thought, what about if the health service just could prescribe people a warm home? The National Health Service is so worried about the impact of the cold on people's health, it's testing paying for some of the most vulnerable's heating. So there will be a thousand homes helped this winter as part of this winter's trial, and they will be people at risk of being admitted during the winter because they live in a cold home. It's a worrying new reality for so many. And the message here is that those who need help mustn't be afraid to ask for it. People are scared of community. They're scared of being judged by others. I won't go to that warm bank in that church. I won't go along to these events, wherever it is, because I'll be judged. Venture out. The world's full of wonderful people. You'll meet friends. Anna Stewart, CNN, London. Okay, coming up here on First Move, he's a football icon in Iran, but he's also been a vocal critic of the government. And now his family have been prevented from leaving the country. We look at what it means next. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move, where US stocks are up and running for the first trading day of this holiday-shortened week. Just four more days to go before we turn the page and begin a fresh new year on Wall Street. It's been a rough 2022 and a softer start now to the trading week, too. As you can see, the Nasdaq almost off by 1% in early trade. Today's stock laggards include Tesla. Once again, its shares are falling after an 18% plunge last week. The big concerns today include news that production will be cut at the EV firm's Shanghai plant next month. And shares of Southwest Airlines also grounded. Southwest far and away the most impacted of all the major U.S. carriers, as we were discussing earlier on in the show, during this historic winter storm that continues to impact travel nationwide across the United States. Southwest plans to operate just over a third of its schedule in the coming days that it attempts to reboot operations. It cancelled some 70 percent of its flights on Monday alone. OK, let's go to Iran now, where the family of an Iranian football star were prevented from leaving Iran mid-flight, according to an Iranian news agency. The flight was carrying the wife and daughter of Ali Dai, who is a critic of the Iranian government, and was forced to return to Iran after setting off for Dubai. Nada Bashir is in London with more. Nada, what more do we know about this flight? And, and just talk us through who this football star is and, and where his family are now, if we know. Well, look, Julian, no official explanation has been directly offered by the authorities as to why this flight, which was bound for Dubai, was uh, turned around and why the wife of Iranian footballing legend Ali Dai were forced uh, to remove, be removed from the flight at Kish Island, an Iranian island on the Persian Gulf mid-flight. Now, there are serious concerns around uh, what perhaps they may face now upon their removal. But what we do know so far is, according uh, to state-run media, Ali Dai's wife had a travel ban placed on her. Irina has reported this in a now-retracted article, uh, saying that she had been asked to inform authorities uh, of any plans to travel out of the country, but failed to do so. Now, that article has now been retracted, but separately, the semi-official Tasneem news agency has reported that Ali Dai's wife faced a travel ban over participation in riots, or so-called riots, uh, in November and December across 
Iran. Now, of course, there is concern around whether or not this was targeted. Ali Dai, as you mentioned, there is a government critic, very vocal in his support for the protest movement. But he himself has said that he is not aware of any travel ban that were placed on his family or in particular on his wife and has not been given a reason as to why they were removed from this flight. Can you tell me why he might have been targeted too? I mean, I saw some, I was looking back over history and some of the social media posts that he made and some of them are pretty potent pointing out that you should solve people's problems perhaps rather than trying more forceful methods and and repressing the people he's vocal yeah he is absolutely very vocal and this isn't the first time we've seen the Iranian regime take a hardline approach to uh, cracking down on notable figures sports people uh, notable artists and political activists in the country in an attempt to quell these protests that are still ongoing in the country. They began in September, and despite the crackdown, they are continuing. And, of course, Ali Dai himself has been a very vocal critic of the Iranian regime in general, and also, of course, of the Iranian regime's crackdown on protesters. He most recently refused an invitation to the World Cup in a show of solidarity with the protest movement. And he shared this post on Instagram. I can read you just a quick bit from that, saying, instead of repression violence and arresting the Iranian people solve their problems. A direct message there to the Iranian regime. He is a hugely notable figure in Iran and has taken a very clear stance in solidarity with the Iranian protest movement, the anti-regime protest movement. The concern now is this could be another repercussion uh, faced by another notable Iranian figure for standing up to the Iranian regime. Nana Bashir, thank you so much for reporting on that. And any further details or information about his family, we will bring it to you. Nada, thank you for now. OK, so to come here on First Move, is there a path to peace in a world full of inner and outer conflict? My conversation with author and meditation guru Deepak Chopra after this. Welcome back to First Move. As the year draws to a close, we all get even just a brief opportunity to reflect on what's past and what lies ahead and how we best address some of the world's biggest challenges. I'm sad to say we've had to spend far too much time, I think, this year discussing conflict and the spillover effects all over the world, whether it's conflict in war zones between our leaders, within our nations, the impact on finances and family, and even conflict within ourselves. Which is why it's always useful to speak to entrepreneur, author and meditation guru Deepak Chopra. We discussed his latest book, Living in the Light, Yoga for Self-Realization. But it was also about his message to world leaders about finding paths to peace. Deepak, it's always great to talk to you. You're focusing on the origins of conflict and actually you have a message for world leaders. What, where are we with leadership today? What, what's happening? Julia, by and large, uh, world leadership is composed of gangsters. That's all they're interested in is cronyism, corruption, power mongering, influence peddling, and making money uh, through whatever you know means they can. So if you want to resolve conflicts in the world, uh, I think even notwithstanding my message to world leaders, which got no response. <laughs> really? No one responded? No response. I did get a response. You didn't put some... gangster in the message, though, just yeah, to be clear. I didn't. But, I didn't. Yeah. but I did uh, get a response from some people at the UN, so I will be speaking there really? at some point. Mm. But here's the basic idea. 
if we can solve conflicts personally with people in our personal lives, our personal relationships, if we can do that, and if enough of us do that and become the change we want to see in the world, then the world could definitely be more peaceful, more just, more sustainable, healthier, and more joyful. Where does it come from? Because you say it's sort of an outward manifestation of inner conflict, I think. All conflict and all violence is an outer manifestation of fear. The people who are the biggest tyrants in the world are also the most fearful. They are addicted to power. An addiction to power is actually an addiction to fear, mm. literally. That power, because it's false power, it's not self-power. Self-power is when you feel beneath no one, but you're also um, responsive to feedback. It's where you feel beneath no one, but also superior to no one. Real power is where you're fearless and where you can exercise that power at all times, irrespective of your agency. So agency power is because of you have an official title, leader, president of the right. country, or you have lots of money, multi-billionaire, or you have influence. That's agency power. It lasts only as long as the agency is there. But self-power is eternal. It hides behind the self-pity or self-importance that egomaniacs have. How do you find that power, that power that transcends agency? Yeah, well, you have to find your true self. You have to not sacrifice yourself for your selfie. All these people mistake their selfies for themselves. So, <laughs> you know, there are <laughs> certain rules. selfies for themselves. Yeah, yeah, we have sacrificed ourselves for our selfies. That's the world's condition. Through a filter as well Through at a times. Filter. Yeah. Called the fearful, separate, self-sorrowful mind. Self-pity is the same as self-importance. If you weren't feeling sorrow for yourself, you won't need to feel important. You know, if you want to watch a genuine, authentic leader in the world, see how playful they are. See how much they laugh. I haven't found a single leader recently with even a genuine, authentic smile. Leave alone playfulness or humor. It's seen as weakness. It seems weak. To laugh or to cry seems to feel weak. But in fact, it's ultimate uh, strength. To be totally vulnerable is also to be totally uh, powerful in the real sense because there's nothing to attack. When you're defenseless, there's nothing to attack. I sort of go through all of those things that you just mentioned and I map them back to what we're seeing in Ukraine with, with President Putin. And I, I'm fearful, I'll be honest, for a resolution to that. What's going on with Putin? What, how do you... You know, from time to time, that? from time to time, there are people who emerge on national scenes that represent, at least for the moment, a collective psychosis, right. a collective rage. The kind of rage we're seeing in Ukraine suggests a Freudian impotent rage that is seeking an outlet 
through killing people. But it's not just what's happening right now in Russia. It happened in Germany. It uh, happened it in many other places, Brazil. Mm. And, you, know, you see all this extreme fundamentalist rage coming out, out of fear of losing a particular ethnic or racial or gender identity, which is based on very false constructs. So that fear is emerging. And uh, whenever there's that kind of turbulence, there's always also a desire for a collective, creative uh, resolution of conflict as well. And I think we're seeing that right now. We're at a crossroads, Julia. If we continue to behave the way we are, I think our collective behavior suggests, frankly speaking, an insanity. So what do you say of a world where we are killing each other, where we have poison in our food chain, where we have extinction of species, where we have climate change, we have mass pandemics created because we have created this climate dysbiosis. What do you say of a species that is sleepwalking to extinction? Right this moment, we have a choice. Either we sleepwalk to extinction, which could be 60 years from now, if we don't reverse or address climate change, mm. which is directly or indirectly connected to mass pandemics, mass migrations, mass fear, mass social injustice. It's all connected. If we don't address that, we will see the next extinction. The last extinction was 65 million years ago when um, a meteorite fell on this earth and dinosaurs were wiped out. Thank God, because we emerged. But nature might say the human species was an interesting experiment, but it didn't work. I'd say we're our own meteorite, actually, at this moment. Yeah. And my message yeah. would be, quite frankly, wake up. And wake we all up. need to do that. Um, very quickly, Living in the Light. My new book talks about how do you go beyond the hypnosis of social conditioning, which yeah. is leading exactly to all this. Exactly what we're talking about. We're talking. <laughs> how do you go beyond that yeah. to find your true self, which is infinite possibilities, infinite creativity, and infinite love. Oh, there you go. Well, that's what we want. Less selfies, more love. <laughs> Self-love. Thank you. And finally, on first move, I'm sure Deepak would be happy to see a lot more empathy around the world. Perhaps he needs to enlist a load of women. A new study by Cambridge University found that women really are better at empathising with others than men. In the largest analysis of cognitive empathy ever done, this was true apparently around the world, in 57 countries. That means that location, cultural or family influences simply didn't make a difference. Researchers couldn't find a single country where men scored better than women. Come on, boys. That's it for the show. If you've missed any of our interviews today, they will be on my Twitter and Instagram pages. You can search for at CNN. Connect the World is up next, and I'll see you tomorrow. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. 
In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.